Thanks to you at home for joining us this evening. We have some big breaking news. NBC News has now confirmed that former Vice President Mike Pence has been subpoenaed by special counsel Jack Smith, the man who is overseeing the investigation into Trump's efforts to overturn the results of the 2020 election, including the attack on the U.S. Capitol. The news was first reported by ABC News. We don't know exactly what information was sought in that subpoena, but according to ABC, it comes after months of negotiations between federal prosecutors and Pence's legal team. Both the special counsel's office and a spokesman for the vice, former vice president are declining to comment to NBC about this new development. But this is the first time the former vice president has been subpoenaed in any matters relating to the 2020 elections, including by the January 6th House committee. Back in November, Pence said the reason he was not testifying to the committee, despite the fact that he was, of course, the main witness of the January 6th attack, was because it would set a terrible precedent, due in part, he said, to the partisan nature of that investigation. But Pence didn't need to talk to the committee for the public to understand the information that he was in possession of. Two of his aides, Mark Short and Greg Jacob, they testified before a grand jury in the DOJ investigation and also publicly testified to the January 6th committee about the many ways former President Trump and his allies pressured Pence to disrupt the counting of the Electoral College votes as part of a broader effort to keep Trump in power. Their testimony was fairly explosive, and it was understood as Pence's sort of way of cooperating with the January 6th investigation, until Pence wrote an op-ed in the Wall Street Journal with his account of what went down that day. Pence also gave interviews to national news outlets, ones that are now part of the public record, including this one, where Pence confirmed telling Trump that he indeed lost the election. Did you ever point blank say to the president, I will not do this. I will not intervene. We lost this election. I did, David, many times. We know because we have learned in testimony since that it's believed that the president was aware that people in that crowd, that some of them might have been armed. And that he then said, we're going to march to the Capitol and sent them there anyway. He knew you were at the Capitol, that lawmakers were at the Capitol. What do you make of that? Well, I thought the president's words were reckless and his actions were reckless. The president's words that day at the rally endangered me and my family and everyone at the Capitol building. Mike Pence's name appears 572 times in the final January 6th report. That same report lists the ways in which Pence's life was put at risk on January 6th by supporters of President Trump, but also how Pence, despite all that pressure, was determined to certify the election for Joe Biden. From the report, quote, Pence was determined that unless there was imminent danger to bodily safety, that he was not going to abandon the Capitol and let the rioters have a victory of having made the vice president flee or made it difficult to restart the process later that day. It was an unprecedented scene in American history. The president of the United States had riled up a mob that hunted his own vice president. Despite that danger, and despite the multiple reports of Trump supporters chanting, hang Mike Pence that day, Donald Trump did not ever try to reach his own vice president while the Capitol was under siege. According to Pence, it took Trump five days after the attack to make any contact. January 6th was a tragic day. 
but it would be some five days after those tragic events that uh, the president asked for an opportunity to speak with me. I walked down to the Oval Office. I went into the back room where we'd spent so many hours together and really forged a close working relationship. But uh, obviously it had not ended well. But when I walked into that back room, the president looked up at me and first expressed concern about my wife and daughter, who he said he had just learned were with me throughout the day and night, January 6th and 7th. I answered to him sternly that we were fine. He asked me if... uh, if I was afraid. And I told him, no, Mr. President, I was angry. I was angry about our differences, and I was also uh, infuriated, Judy, at what I had seen that day. People ransacking the Capitol and uh, uh, breaking glass and assaulting law enforcement officers. Trump has not ceased his attacks against Pence. Instead, he has said over and over that Pence didn't do the right thing, that he failed, that he was a coward. And he has said much, much worse. And now it appears Mike Pence will finally be asked to tell his part of the story under oath. Joining us now to help understand how all of this works and what's going to happen next is former U.S. attorney for the Eastern District of Michigan, Barb McQuaid, and Carol Lenning, national investigative reporter at The Washington Post. Thank you both for being here tonight. It's you are wonderful sources to help explain what is going to happen next here. And Barb, I I just want to start with you because we know this is a subpoena. But we are also being told that it comes at after months or at least several weeks of negotiating between the vice president's, the former vice president's legal team and the DOJ. Is this a friendly subpoena, if, if such a thing exists? In other words, is this a subpoena to provide Mike Pence cover to cooperate with the DOJ investigation, do you think? Well, we don't know, but that's absolutely a possibility, Alex. It's not unusual for uh, prosecutors to reach out to witnesses and if they will come in willingly, voluntarily, to just bring them in without a subpoena. Um, Sometimes witnesses refuse to come without a subpoena. You have to compel them to come and get a court order. Other times witnesses say, I'm willing to come, but I need a subpoena so that I can explain to others that I didn't come voluntarily. It wasn't my idea to share information against someone who used to be an ally uh, or all of his political followers. Um, I am only responding to the subpoena because you're making me. And so I have seen that happen, that people will sometimes request a subpoena so that they can uh, say, I'm simply complying with the law. It's not my idea here, but I have no choice. I want to ask both of you what you would ask Mike Pence, because we do know a fair amount, given the interviews he's sat for, the op-eds he's penned, the book he has written. I mean, Carol Letting, what is the question that you would, I mean, what are your leading, not leading questions, but what are your top of mind questions for the vice president, you know, if you were an investigator with the DOJ? You're right. So right, Alex, that so much of what Pence experienced that day has been reported in the pages of my newspaper, in various books. But there, to me, it seems really critical that the special counsel, Jack Smith, wants Pence in an interview room to get more deeply into what the president said to him, what the president said, what words they exchanged. And that goes to ultimately former President Donald Trump's state of mind as he was pulling all of these different levers, increasingly desperately trying to hold on to power, trying to block and overturn the election results. For example, I'd want to ask Pence, well, what did Donald Trump say to you about losing the election? What did he say in terms of acknowledging whether or not he thought he had lost? I'd also get at 
Vice President Pence, do you remember what the president said to you about his strategy for holding on to power? What did he say about the electors? What did he say to you about whether or not he believed the claim that was given that Pence would have this incredible power to uh, basically reject the certification of the vote? Which actually, you know, as you know, and, and I know Barbara knows, the lawyer who proposed that to Donald Trump would later acknowledge um, there was no way that that would work. And he didn't even think it was feasible. Barb, let's follow on what Carol is saying in terms of the state of mind. How does that factor into the potential charges here? What meaningfully what are the like potential legal re- repercussions if they can establish a certain state of mind vis-a-vis the president and his intentionality in terms of inciting an insurrection? Well, I have always thought, Alex, that the best charge available here is, is, is not so much inciting the insurrection, which I think has some challenges under the First Amendment, but instead uh, the charge of conspiracies to defraud the United States. That is, I knew I lost this election and I tried to steal it back anyway. And Mike Pence is a critical component of that because uh, it was trying to persuade Mike Pence publicly, privately, on Twitter and at the rally— uh, to thwart his, his the, the counting of the votes, to abuse his power. And so I think all of those questions that Carol just said go to Donald Trump's knowledge of fraud and intent to persuade Mike Pence to abuse his power. And so if that can be proven, you need not even prove that Donald Trump incited the insurrection. I think that's going to stand or fall based on some of the facts that are already known. I think the committee did something really interesting with regard to that theory, which was it's not so much the speech at the ellipse, but the failure to do anything for three hours uh, and then making the the tweet that says uh, Mike Pence didn't have the courage to do what was necessary. uh, And we demand answers, which threw fuel on the fire uh, and renewed the uh, vigor of the protesters and caused them to start chanting, hang Mike Pence. And so I think the things that Donald Trump said to Mike Pence that could reveal whether he knew he had actually lost the election and that what he was doing was uh, an improper effort to retain office. And there are con- there were conversations that aides could provide some detail on, but there are also conversations where Mike Pence was alone with Donald Trump. And that's why I think it is critically important that they hear directly from Mike Pence about those conversations. Just to follow on that, because this is the import, the import of this testimony is so significant. What can Trump do to stop Pence? I mean, we there's conflicting reports about whether we are this is being set up for a fight over executive privilege. Do you think that that is the case? I mean, what levers are there for Trump at this point to prevent uh, Pence from divulging the secrets that he has fought so hard to keep undisclosed? I think Donald Trump will assert executive privilege and try to stop this, and I think he will fail. Uh, you know, this is a grand jury subpoena, which is a little different from some of the January 6th subpoenas that we saw. It's supposed to be secret. We know about it because there's a report about it uh, sourced to people familiar with the matter. But the witness himself is permitted to disclose grand jury material. So Mike Pence uh, could, in good conscience, I think, uh, say that there is a potential executive privilege issue here. I am sharing it with the former president in case he wants to assert a privilege. I think Donald Trump will assert a privilege. But I think under the precedent of United States versus Nixon, where the Supreme Court said that the grand jury is entitled to everyone's evidence and that in certain situations, although there is executive privilege, it must yield when there is an interest of paramount importance. And courts have already held that with regard to the January 6th investigation when it came to White House documents that were subpoenaed from the National Archives. I expect that same result here. So I think Trump will try and I think he will fail.
Um, Carol, at the risk of reading too much into the president's prolific use of social media, he has spent a long time, as you're well aware, vilifying Mike Pence, calling him all manner of names. But recently, within, I think, the last several weeks, he sent out a conciliatory kind of message about Mike Pence vis-a-vis the classified documents that were found at Mike Pence's residence and effectively said, leave Mike Pence alone. He's a good man. Now, anytime the former president decides to play nice with someone he has spent almost a career making fun of, otherwise chastising or diminishing, I think it's worth trying to understand why. And I wonder if at all you think that could be a preemptive move to potentially curry favor with Mike Pence ahead of what could be fairly damaging testimony that Mike Pence might make to a grand jury. I know that's a lot of ifs. I know that's a lot of suppositions. But I just wonder if you think that there's any chance in, in, in this scenario that Mike Pence is entreated by any of the words of Donald Trump. OK, those are three great questions built in there, Alex, and I'll try to take them quickly. Um, let's go backwards. Mike Pence, uh, I don't think is going to be influenced by anything Donald Trump says at this point. I mean, I reported on what Pence's day was like at the Capitol on January 6th, huddling with his wife, his daughter, uh, her husband, his aides uh, in a basement trying to stay safe, but also trying to remain in the Capitol so that he could finish the job that Donald Trump didn't want him to do. He's pretty much broken uh, a relationship and uh, with Donald Trump because he believed Donald Trump put him, him and his family in such grave danger for, for what reason is obvious. Second, uh, you asked, is it possible Pence is trying, uh, forgive me, Trump is trying to win over Pence. It's always possible. But I think your first theory has a little more strength which is Donald Trump is worried about his classified records exposure right now. This is a case that is probably causing the former president the most sleepless nights because it's the easiest case to establish that he was engaged in potential obstruction of a subpoena seeking classified records. Remember, his team asserted to the Department of Justice that they'd done a diligent search and all the records had been returned and then the FBI agents come in at the Department of Justice's behest, and lo and behold, they find a bunch more classified records. So I think Donald Trump, who's often focused on Donald Trump, is mostly excited to say, look, Pence had them too. He's a good guy. He didn't do anything wrong. Same here. Silly me. I thought it could be a long, a long con for the January 6th investigations. But of course, I think you're right, Carol. It's the most obvious answer, which is he's just trying to mitigate potential damage from the looming and the, the potentially looming criminal indictment at his front door down in Mar-a-Lago. Barbara McQuaid and Carol Lenning, thank you again for joining us tonight as we deal with this breaking news and try and understand where it is all leading. Thanks for your time. Thanks, Alex. We have a lot to get to tonight, including a vastly undercovered story about one judge's decision that could affect the lives of millions of Americans as soon as tomorrow. Plus, the first hearing of the new Republican-led subcommittee examining the, quote, weaponization of the federal government. Will the fireworks that Republicans are trying to set off actually end up burning their own fingers? That is not a rhetorical question, and that is next. Hi, everyone. It's Katie Fang. Did you know my weekly show on MSNBC is now available as a podcast? 
With my decades of experience as a trial lawyer, you'll get an insider's perspective on all things legal. At a time when politics and the law are inextricably intertwined, my guests and I break down what's next and why it matters, both inside and outside the courtroom. Search for The Katie Fang Show wherever you're listening and follow. There comes a point when the right to vote requires a fight to vote. MSNBC Films presents Battleground Georgia, a story that explores the ugly history of voter suppression and how Georgia is leading the charge against it. Something has to change. The old South is being replaced by the new South. Battleground Georgia, part of the Turning Point documentary series from executive producer Trevor Noah. Sunday at 9 p.m. Eastern on MSNBC. There were a lot of shocking images on January 6th, images of violence, of vandalism and destruction in our nation's capital. But one of the most iconic and jarring images from that day may have been this one, a rioter proudly carrying the Confederate flag through the halls of Congress. Today, that rioter who carried that flag into the Capitol, 53-year-old Kevin Seyfried, was sentenced to three years behind bars for his role in the Capitol attack. As Kevin Seyfried was being handed down that three-year sentence, just a few blocks away, Republicans were holding their first hearing for the new subcommittee on what they call the weaponization of the federal government. They called as one of their first witnesses, Senator Ron Johnson, who told the committee that their investigation should focus on whether or not rioters like Kevin Seyfried were being treated unfairly and whether January 6th was really the Justice Department's fault to begin with. Serious questions regarding instances of unequal application of justice and violation of January 6th defendants' due process rights remain unanswered. Or how many federal agents and informants were in the crowd? That is what the Weaponization Committee plans to focus on, according to Ron Johnson. Justice for January 6th rioters and the baseless conspiracy that the FBI planted provocateurs in the crowd to rile up innocent Trump supporters. It's not all January 6th conspiracy, though. They are also going to focus on COVID as well. Federal health officials denied patients early treatment and to this day refuse to acknowledge the extent of significant injuries caused by the COVID vaccines. Have emails also revealed Fauci's attempt to hide his agency's role in funding dangerous research that might have led to the creation of the deadly coronavirus? It is also becoming obvious that the World Health Organization has been captured by the Chinese government, the global institutions in general have been captured by the left, and that some charitable foundations are exerting far more power over public policy than should be allowed. Did you get all that? Senator Johnson says the committee should really take a look at the safety of coronavirus vaccines, which new studies estimate saved more than 3 million lives and kept another 18 million people out of the hospital. He wants them to investigate the unhinged conspiracy that Dr. Anthony Fauci was somehow responsible for causing coronavirus in the first place. And he wants Congress to use its resources to look into whether China and the left are somehow taking over global institutions. Now, because Democrats made the wise decision to participate in these hearings, they were also able to call their very own witnesses today. And Democrats chose Congressman and former January 6th impeachment manager Jamie Raskin to be their first witness. 
Amid his ongoing battle with cancer, Congressman Raskin laid bare exactly what is at the heart of this new committee's mission. Millions of Americans already feared that weaponization is the right name for this special subcommittee. Not because weaponization of the government is its target, but because weaponization of the government is its purpose. The odd name of the weaponization subcommittee constitutes a case of pure psychological projection. When former President Donald Trump and his followers accuse you of doing something, they're usually telling you exactly what their own plans are. Now, of course, a serious bipartisan committee focused on weaponization of the government would zero in quickly on the Trump administration itself. Trump and his obliging sycophantic attorney generals like Jefferson Sessions and William Barr repeatedly pressured career prosecutors to go hard or go soft in particular cases, always seeking to reward Trump's friends or to punish his enemies. If weaponization of the Department of Justice has any meaning, this is it. So that is the state of play here. And if this is how it all starts, where does it go from here? Joining us now is McKay Coppin, staff writer at The Atlantic and author of the upcoming book, Romney, A Reckoning, which will be out this October and which we are going to talk about very shortly. McKay, thanks for joining me tonight. I want to get right to the numbers here, right? Like we have talked a lot about the strange rabbit hole of paranoia that certain factions of the GOP have plunged us into. But the American public does not seem to be buying it. If you look at the polling, the Washington Post ABC poll found that a margin of 56 to 36 percent of Americans think this committee is just an attempt to score political points. And only 11 percent of respondents believe government agencies are biased against liberals. I mean, what do you think is the just pure political calculation of having this weaponization committee, you know, peopled by the people, the folks we see on deck here asking the questions they're asking? Yeah, I mean, I think like so much of the Republican Party today, the whole spectacle is targeted at the base, right? <laughs> the, the small percentage, relatively small percentage of Americans who are fully immersed in these narratives, right? But the, the thing about the hearing that struck me was not that they were trying to turn a congressional hearing into essentially what is Fox News primetime, but that most of the talking points, they were kind of... Uh, laying out, I think we're almost, un, you know, difficult to understand for the average American. It, it wasn't that they were biased or that they were right-wing talking points. It was that unless you are kind of swimming in the water of conservative media, it's very difficult to even follow the narratives that they're, they're kind of laying out. And I, I think that what has happened over the last several years in the Republican Party is that as they have focused more and more on their core supporters, they have kind of lost the plot, lost the ability to make a popular, uh, persuasive argument to the majority of Americans. Yeah, that's such a good point. They're, they're using the shorthand of those who wear the tinfoil hat and basically ignoring the rest of the American public. The strategy they're employing is the opposite, for example, of the January 6th committee, which tried to bring the American public in and it was very televisual. There was not insider jargon. This is all about, you know, I mean, even Sarah Huckabee Sanders' response to the State of the Union was all CRT and Latinx and these terms that if you weren't, you know, deeply enmeshed in the paranoid worldview of Fox News, 
sources, you would not know what they were talking about. But that seems to I mean, it's a foregone conclusion that this is the path that they've charted and that are, they are going to continue to go down. I mean, is do you think anybody who is outside the fringe center, fringe center, the fringes that are at the center of Republican power in Congress these days can have a word with them? I mean, is there and I want to get to Mitt Romney because I I just wonder if the establishment or the like those who are still of sound mind and body within the GOP can talk to them about this. Yeah, I, I mean, I think I can say with some confidence that there are still Republicans uh, who are trying to reason with uh, what you call the fringe of their party, which is actually now increasingly the mainstream of their party. Um but they're having a very difficult time making the case, right? I mean, what you've seen is that the Mitt Romneys and John McCain's and uh, Liz Cheney's of the party over the last five years were turned into pariahs, right? These were people who were once the leaders of the establishment, the uh, the kind of faces of the party. They are now on the fringe themselves of their own party, and so they don't have a ton of sway. They don't they they don't get listened to in caucus lunches. They don't, you know, get invited onto Fox News to make their case to, you know, the average conservative voter. They're not, they're, they don't have the influence they once did. And so I don't think that they've given up. I just don't think that, you know, the average MAGA Republican or the average person who is running that committee feels any need to listen to them. Well, but I just wonder if that's, if, if they've been given enough, enough of a chance to scold the erratic, paranoid conspiracy theorists among them. I mean, and I want to focus on this moment that happened at the State of the Union when Mitt Romney effectively cows George Santos. And, you know, Santos comes out looking like the loser, I think, in this in this interaction, right? I mean, the force of you know, statesmen's words, the force of the, the the elders of the party matters when those force, those, those words are delivered forcefully. And I wonder if you think that we're going to hear more of that. Like, is Mitt Romney, for lack of a better term, unleashed at this stage of the game when he sees what's becoming of the party? You are, have special access to the man. You're writing a book about him. Just how um, animated is he by this? Yeah, I think that what, what struck me about that moment with George Santos is that it, it does illustrate where Mitt Romney is at this moment. It also illustrates the fact that, you know, what Mitt Romney was saying to George Santos is not a kind of out on a limb opinion, right? I think you, if you talk to the average establishment Republican, whatever that means, if you talk to the average normal Republican in Congress, they would uh, they would agree with what what he said, but they don't say it, and they certainly don't say it that, that way. And they don't confront George Santos the way that Mitt Romney did. They don't confront the the kind of wingnuts in their party ever. And so, what Mitt Romney does, his gift at this moment is not that he has some you know extremely original insight. It's that he's willing to say the things yeah. that most Republicans aren't willing to say without stepping on what's in my book. You know, it's just coming out in October. I think you will hear a lot more from him along these lines. I don't think that that was an isolated incident. And potentially deep tease here. What role Romney may have played in empowering the extreme forces within the GOP? I just I'm going to leave it I, there. I just say that, <laughs> Go ahead. Yeah, that's a, let's leave it there. <laughs> the book, I assume you finished writing it so you know what's in there. We're going to read it and have you back, McKay Coppins. Thank you for joining me, my friends. Always good to see you. You too.
We have still more to come tonight, including a potential bombshell decision that is expected out of a federal court in Texas, one that could upend the lives of millions as soon as tomorrow. You do not want to miss that story. And turmoil at the Supreme Court has put a spotlight on the fact that the justices themselves aren't bound by any particular code of ethics. We'll talk to someone who has a plan to fix all that. That's coming up next. Today's news requires more facts, more context, and more analysis. The world's never been harder to understand. That's why it's never been more important to try. MSNBC. Understand more. On the MSNBC podcast, How to Win 2024, political experts, former Senator Claire McCaskill and Democratic strategist Jennifer Palmieri examine the campaign strategies unfolding in this all-important election. The focus is on the voters that are not necessarily in your corner now. If Democrats are going to win in 2024, we have to be able to explain what is happening at the border and what the solutions are. Search for How to Win 2024 wherever you get your podcasts. New episodes every Thursday. Unlike all other federal judges, there is no ethics code and there are no standards for Supreme Court justices. The Washington Post reports today that the justices have been discussing establishing rules for themselves for four years now, but they couldn't come to an agreement. So they just aren't going to give themselves any rules, which is wild, particularly wild for an institution in which public confidence is at a historic low an institution that has truly too many controversies to count at this point. Whether or not you care about the leak of the draft opinion of the court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade, which was authored by Justice Samuel Alito, the court's investigation into that leak has been incredibly telling. All rank-and-file Supreme Court employees were required to sign affidavits swearing they didn't leak the draft decision, but the justices themselves were not. That investigation led to a whistleblower coming forward alleging that way back in 2014, he received an early heads up about the landmark Hobby Lobby contraception decision, another decision authored by Justice Samuel Alito. Now, Justice Alito denied disclosing the decision, and that seems to be how that story ends, with no one actually pressing the justices. Last year, Justice Clarence Thomas was the lone dissent against the Supreme Court's decision to let the House January 6th committee obtain Trump's presidential records. Months later, the Washington Post discovered that Thomas's wife, Ginny, had texted with Trump's chief of staff, Mark Meadows, in the lead up to January 6th, urging Trump to overturn the election results. Any lower court judge would be forced to recuse. Clarence Thomas, lone dissent. None of this is shall we say, a good look. Nor is it normal for our country's justice system. And that is why today, Democratic Senator Chris Murphy and Democratic Congressman Hank Johnson introduced bills to make ethics rules for the highest court in this land. Joining us now is the man himself, Chris Murphy, senator from the great state of Connecticut. Senator Murphy, thank you for being with us tonight. Can you tell me what you want to do in this bill? Well, what we want to do is very simple. We want to make sure that every judge who sits on a federal bench has a code of conduct that the American people can see that applies to them. As you mentioned right now, there are only nine justices that have no code of conduct. Um, That's outrageous, especially at a moment where we're seeing this rather outlandish and transparent 
integration between the conservative justices on the court and the broader conservative movement. You mentioned this case in which there's a really serious allegation that Justice Alito or one of his family members um, told conservative activists ahead of time about a contraception decision. The court said, well, there's no evidence that there was an ethical standard breached. What ethical standard? There is no set of standards that applies to the Supreme Court. They are exempt. And so what we're calling for here is an independent body that already exists, the Judicial Conference, to set up a code of conduct that will probably look very much like what appellate court judges and district court judges are held to. Um, So at the very least, uh, we know uh, what rules apply and what rules don't apply to the Supreme Court. I just think we're at a moment of real uh, crisis of legitimacy when it comes to the court. And I think the court would be helped by having this code of conduct that everybody can see. So if someone on the court violates the code of ethics, is there punishment? I mean, what kind of enforcement mechanism do you see here? Yeah, so this is the real problem, right? I mean, it is probably beyond the bounds of the legislative branch to provide an enforcement mechanism. In our bill, uh, we would establish a form of independent counsel who could undertake investigations. But sanction would ultimately have to be up to the Supreme Court itself, just like sanction of members of Congress is ultimately up to Congress. But we have a code of ethics. We have a process by which an investigation is done on a member of Congress. And that's simply what we want to happen here. Have a binding code, have a process of investigation. And then when that investigation is done and the American public can see it, that will provide pressure on the justices to take action if the code has been violated. What what kind of intel do you have on the court's argument against something like this? Well, here's a theory of the case. Um, because we have this remarkable reporting in which the Supreme Court apparently has been talking about developing a code for four years. And so clearly there's a group of justices who think this is a good idea, and there's a group of justices who think it's not a good idea. Justice Roberts, Justice, Ali- Justice Alito, they've testified before Congress in the past about their disdain or their skepticism about this code. My worry is that the j- conservative justices on the court don't really think they're judges, They don't think they should be bound by the same code of conduct as every other federal court judge because they're policymakers, not judges. They're making law, not interpreting law. They, they, the new justices, Gorsuch, Kavanaugh, they, um, Coney Barrett, they, they ran campaigns for the Supreme Court, just like we run campaigns for elected office in the legislature. So my worry is that they don't believe they should be bound by the code that every other justice is bound by because they think they are not judges. They believe they are policymakers. Well, and I think there are probably people in the GOP that enjoy the fact that they're making law, right? They're effectively the functioning branch of the Republican Party in a lot of ways. The Republicans in the legislature are busy having hearings about, you know, COVID coming from Mars or wherever. And and the Republicans, the conservative justices on the court are actually crafting law. And I would imagine that 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 the the Republican caucus is probably loath to do anything that would curb that kind of their ability to do something like that. Do you have a sense that there's any kind of bipartisan support for what you're what you're proposing here? 
Well, this has been the very clear strategy uh, from the beginning, just to underscore your point. What Republicans want for America, it's deeply unpopular, whether it be the invalidation of the Affordable Care Act or a ban on abortion. These are things that you can't get past through an elected legislature. The only way you can impose that agenda on the country is through an unelected body like the Supreme Court. So, yes, of course, the whole strategy is to put the policymakers on the Supreme Court because the policies are so popular that they can't move through the elected branch. Um, listen, I think Republicans should care about this as well. You know, there's smaller bits of evidence that the more progressive justices are, you know, sometimes attending these political conferences that the conservative justices more often go to. Um, but it's just bad for the ultimate legitimacy of democracy uh, if everybody thinks the fix is in at the Supreme Court. Lindsey Graham has expressed some interest uh, in uh, proposals like this, and we'll continue to try to find you know some partners across the aisle. But right now, as you said, Republicans seem to like the fact that a lot of policymaking without much oversight is happening on the Supreme Court. Senator Chris Murphy, we wish you luck in your bid to restore some integrity to an institution that could use some of it right now. Thanks for your time tonight and good luck. When we come back, the story I have been promising you, one that is going to make you look for your doctor's phone number. That's next. Mifepristone, better known as RU486, may be the most controversial drug the FDA ever has approved. Medical advances should go through a rigorous scientific process, but they shouldn't have to go through the kind of political process that Mifepristone has had to deal with. The FDA approved the drug in September 2000, more than 22 years ago. It has been used safely ever since by millions of people. It is called mifepristone, and it stops the production of a hormone necessary for pregnancy. And it is one of two drugs typically used in medication abortions. As of 2022, more than 54% of abortions in the U.S. happen with these pills, not surgery. And that percentage has likely increased in the months since the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade. Perhaps for that reason, conservative groups have been targeting mifepristone since the Dobbs decision last summer. That little pill, which is barely bigger than an aspirin, is the new frontier of the fight over abortion access in this country. Already, 18 states have established restrictions on the pills, with some trying to cut off male access to the drug and others threatening the pharmacists who provide the medication. But as soon as tomorrow, a federal judge in Texas, one appointed by former President Donald Trump, could make a decision that would upend access, access to mifepristone nationwide, which means nationwide. And that includes blue states like California and New York. It includes states that have recently enshrined access to abortions in their state constitutions, like Michigan and Vermont. No matter where you live, this could impact you. A conservative group called Alliance Defending Freedom, which, by the way, the Southern Poverty Law Center considers a hate group, that group brought a case against the FDA in November to challenge the agency's approval of mifepristone, which, again, happened 20 years ago. The group claims that the FDA lacked the authority to approve the drug and did not adequately study its safety and efficacy. The Alliance Defending Freedom wants Judge Kazmarek to issue a preliminary injunction effectively blocking all access to mifepristone and revoking the FDA's approval of it. Tomorrow is the deadline for briefs from the plaintiff and the FDA. 
Once those briefs are in, Judge Kazmara could make the decision to block access to Mifepristone swiftly, as soon as tomorrow. If Judge Kazmarek does decide to block the use of this drug, the Biden administration is expected to quickly file an appeal. But even then, this case is expected to rapidly work its way up to the conservative, row-ending Supreme Court. Joining us now is Nancy Northup, president and CEO of the Center for Reproductive Rights. Nancy, thank you for being here tonight. Thank you for following this important story. It is. I mean, this is literally a a five alarm fire if you care about women's reproductive freedoms. Um, And the fact that it is applicable nationwide. Right. We're talking about the 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 sort of choice, the form of abortion that most women choose could be not available to people all over this country. How likely do you think it is that we will get a ruling on this tomorrow? And what is your level of optimism here? Well, let's just start by, I'm sure your listeners are saying, how is it even possible that this could ban medication abortion nationwide? And it's because, as you pointed out in your opening, they have said that the FDA approval back over 22 years ago was not Correct. And of course, that is fundamentally wrong. Mm-hmm. The science and the facts support it. So it's a baseless lawsuit. But why are we on high alert? Why are you on high alert? Because they filed the lawsuit before a judge. They shopped the forum in Amarillo, Texas, yeah. before a judge who has a very anti-abortion, anti-contraception record. So the concern is that he could well rule that the FDA, although again, baseless, that the FDA should not approve this, which would mean that he might enjoin its use across the nation. So we are of heightened concern about that. But again, your listeners should know that medication abortion is safe and effective. 22 years plus Over 5 million women in the United States have used medication abortion. As you pointed out, it is the method of choice for most people in the United States. What I mean, what is the recourse here? So the Biden administration is likely to file an appeal. But if there is not a stay on the injunction, right, this freezes access to mifepristone across the country. There could be women who need abortions in the next days, weeks. I mean, what recourse do they have in a moment like this? Well, right. So first of all, it would create chaos. Of course, clinics across the nation, they're following this uh, and they're thinking about what their options are and looking at that. And we have to see what the ruling would be. But of course, it would create more crisis on top of the crisis already happening because many people are accessing medication abortion. The FDA has also found it to be safe and effective by telemedicine. So, you know, if all of a sudden clinics have to switch from people doing telemedicine medication abortion, safe and effective at home, to having to come in for surgical abortion, that changes entirely the access framework. So it is hugely problematic. And again, it shows that the ultimate goal was never, as the Supreme Court said, Roe versus Wade is overturned, we're sending it back to states to decide. No, 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 the ultimate goal is to ban it for everyone nationwide. So, what, I mean, what should women do who are, or people who need abortions, right, need access to mifepristone and think they're, maybe they live in a state where they can't gain access to a surgical abortion. What do they do right now? I mean, what is the, what is the, what, what do you advise people who are alarmed? They're just finding this out. Do they call their doctors? I mean, yes. I mean, the first thing, no matter what the court rules, if people have an abortion scheduled, if they had a tele 
health visit, if they were going to get medication abortion, call your clinic first, right? Find out first what is happening. Don't assume that you know. Don't assume that because you saw a news show that maybe, you know, you're ready to take action on your own. Go ahead and look at that. And then also look at other, you know, credible resources, all the nonprofit organizations and Planned Parenthoods and independent clinics and abortion funds and all the places that you can get information. The New York Attorney General has information on her website, all those reliable places. But try to get the information first. Don't just assume. This is, I mean, it's very hard. I think because not enough attention has been paid to this issue, it is hard to fathom what could be on our doorstep literally in the next 24 hours and the chaos that they could, as you say, layer on top what is already an unacceptable situation as far as women's access to reproductive freedoms. Nancy, thank you for coming here. Thank you for doing the work that you're doing. Please keep us posted as this case makes its way through the courts. Absolutely. Ending where, we don't know. That is the show for tonight.